0: Rush on the links.
1: In your life have you seen anything like that?
0: Is it his time? Yes!
1: And Number one is landed! At the 72nd hole, this time for long. Now on the team, your host from Anaheim, California, Trent Rush and Nico Bellini. Rush on the links. Happy Saturday, everybody. Welcome to the program. My name is Trent Rush. Of course, we got Nico Bellini hanging out here in studio. No more baseball going on here at the Big A, which means it is full-blown golf season. Absolutely. Even if your course has punched greens right now, I know it is the season for that. It means find somewhere else to play. Go have some fun. I'm sure you already did. Those listening here on Saturday morning. Uh, I, that's the beauty of this. We can talk a little golf after your round. And of course, those listening to our podcast, available on Apple Podcast, iHeart, all over the place. Really cool stuff. If you ever miss an edition of Rush On The Links, we got the podcast available. And it becomes available as soon as this show comes to an end. So at 2 o'clock every Saturday, that is there for you. Nico, a lot of news uh, to get to in the golf world. First of all, uh, it's good to see you. Uh, we talked last week about uh, coming back from the the U.S. Mid-Am, have you uh, gotten any more tournaments on your schedule in the meantime? Or you have anything else in mind about what's next for you?
0: So the actual mid amateur or Amateur schedule typically ends in the summertime. You have spring, summer, and fall. Um, and then after that, so there's no really big major events. It's mainly member members, member guests, um, some invitationals. But um, no, there's nothing on the horizon besides uh, my local club championship.
1: You know what that means? Finally, you and I can get to play now. That, that's, <laughs> exactly. what, that's what that means. we gotta, we got to set that up. And, and we're working on some ways as well for our listeners to be able to play with us as well. We're going to try to set some of those things up uh, here in the near future because I think it'd be lots of fun. It's a community part of golf. that That's what has been so appealing to me. And, and Nico is such a huge part of that. And if anybody isn't familiar with Nico's career, there's a billion articles about him. Just Google Nico below and check out uh, one of the great amateur players in Orange County golf history. And we feel lucky to have him here in the studio with us today. There's a few things I want to talk about. Uh, First and foremost, this is something that you and I have talked about off air that I wanted to bring onto the show today. And that is the idea of the role of the caddy. And golf being as psychological of a game as it is. The big news that came down last week: Justin Thomas getting bones on the bag. That's a big deal. Um, maybe could you explain to us maybe why that's such a big deal? Because that that seems to be at least you know in the last you know seven eight days that's been like the top story in golf.
0: So, having the correct caddy is vital to a PGA Tour player's career. Um, I mean look at the jump that Tiger made when he went from Fluff to Steve Williams Steve Williams became this enforcer for him and you have to have a guy who's able to handle the big moments just like you are because it's one thing if you as a tour player are in the heat of battle and it's coming down the last five holes your caddy has to be able to handle that moment as well it's no different in a lot of ways you know I talk about walking that plank you know you've you have that plank two feet off the ground. Then you raise it to 100 feet off the ground. It's the same act, but it's now you got trepidation, you got you know anxiety, and you're nervous. Your caddy has to be there, you know, walk step with you. I personally, as an amateur, do not like taking caddies because 99.9 percent of my rounds, I make the final decision. I get the number, I have my own thoughts in my head, and I pull the trigger no one at any point is putting doubt in my head. Funny enough, I was playing the SEG Amateur about a month ago, and a very good friend of mine was kind of, you know, asking to caddy, you know, hey, let me come out one of the days, it'll be fun. And I kind of kept pushing it off. Finally, I said, fine, Sunday, come caddy for him. And I said, just carry my bag, we'll talk between shots, and that's it. But of course, he shows up, and he's reading the green, he's probably about a five six seven handicap you know so he wants to be involved really bad and I could tell so following out the eighth hole I was like sure Jason take a look at this what do you think this is going to do and he looks up and he goes I think it's left edge and I'm like it is right edge (laughs) so off the bat we had an incorrect not incorrect read but now there's doubt he could be right and I could be wrong but I don't I'd rather hit a shot or hit a putt with confidence even though it's wrong versus hitting the correct shot with doubt right? see
1: I, see I am somebody that like first of all that would drive me crazy. Secondly, I'm not really good enough, and and I don't I don't read greens particularly well. So when you go to certain places and you're going somewhere for a first time, and there's a lot of resort courses out there where you can go get you know the caddy that walks it every day and is with you know the the you know the, your friends and you're out there and that's what they do and they you know it's a hundred bucks you got to tip them and and that and that's just what the caddy experience is. I think for most people mm-hmm. that are not in competitive golf, and. I like that because, to an extent, because, you know, there might be areas that you just don't know what the course and they can help, you know, reading greens and those kind of things that are a little different than maybe what you're used to or you typically play. But I feel like that is the, the complete opposite of what a competitive player is looking for with somebody that's supposed to help them. I, I feel like, I feel like that, that, that shouldn't even be the same title. That, that, the, the role of a caddy for that player versus somebody playing competitively, to me, it's not even the same.
0: The most important aspect of all this for the tour guys is the caddy has to know your game. So if you as a player can rely on your caddy to make all the correct decisions, as far as when, you, when you're judging a shot, and you're judging wind. He knows how you hit the shot. He knows how you hit putts. You know, he might come to you and say, hey, you know, Nico, I know he won't say this, but he's internally thinking it, that all my putts are usually hit with cup speed. So he knows the read is going to be with a cup speed putt. Or if you're hitting it firmer, right, he'll take some of the breakout. He's got to know when to walk you off the ledge. So if he sees that a player is visibly upset, sometimes you let that guy just be upset. Because right, telling him to calm down is only going to make him more upset. You have to know when to interject. But the information that Bryson's caddy has or Bones with Justin Thomas. Now, I think Justin Thomas is making this move because he's looking to ascend his career and compete strictly in majors. He already does. But this will maybe take him to the next level where you have a guy who's won multiple majors and has been in the heat of the moment multiple times. That can be a huge asset. Where having a guy on the bag that doesn't know your game—I mean, that's a bit of right lightning in a bottle—but um, of course, to the daily player, it's it's nowhere near the assistance that you're going to have versus a, a PGA Tour caddy. Because the tour caddy, he shows up, he knows you want two bananas, you want one power bar, you want the water with the vitamins <laughs> yeah, inside. Right. You know where the clubs are. He knows I'm my towel. I like it wet on the corner. He knows. What I like to do pre and post round. Because there's nothing more annoying than taking a caddy and you sort of got to babysit him before and after the rounds. Hey, Nico, where do I you stand? I don't know. You know, what to, you know, go figure out what to do. You got to kind of pave your own way. I don't want to have to babysit the entire time. So then I become frustrated as a player. I want my caddy to know exactly what to do, how to behave, where to be, not to get in the way, to be invincible. Right? But then he's with you. Walk, step in the heat of the moment. That's just crucially important.
1: I think you said something. You said a lot of things interesting right there. I thought one of those. Just going back to the specific role of Justin Thomas for a moment. This is the move you make when you want to be the number one player in the world. You. you this is not. Hey, I'm comfortable. I want to be a top five guy. I, I like being in the group of the top guys. He is. He is in that group. This is. I want to separate myself. And, you know, he said he didn't fire his caddy, Jimmy Johnson. He said he didn't fire him. That he just, They went different ways, and that can happen, okay. But this is the kind of move you make to elevate to get into that highest echelon of player. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work, but I do respect that Justin Thomas is wanting to make that jump. I think that probably spending time with the Ryder Cup and seeing all those great players that he was around that entire time probably had something to do with, okay, yeah, I, I'm in the group with these guys, I belong in the group with these guys, but with a little bit more help, I think I can be better than all these guys. I'm thinking that has to be the mentality, right?
0: Yeah, and his caddy might say, or Justin might say he didn't fire his caddy, but you think his caddy would ever walk away from future earnings like Justin Thomas? Like who Who is he going to get better besides Dustin Johnson, Morikawa, or dechambo that's yeah. gonna make more money in his career, so I think Justin said, "Hey, you know what? Thanks, but I think it's time to we're gonna make we, this, we're
1: gonna make this look good.
0: Yeah, we're gonna make this look good, and um, you know, and, and good for him because I, I, I've heard nothing but great things about Justin. But Bones is a guy, and Bones had a cush job. You know, he was for sure an on-course reporter. To be an on-course reporter in the golfing world, it's a it's a pretty good old boys club. There, there is you know you got David Ferretti, you had Bones for a while. You had Hunter Mayans caddy. I'm drawing a blank on his name who was out there. John, John, uh, I forget his name, but it's not easy to break that because you're traveling the country at the greatest tour events in the world, having beautiful dinners, making good money. Who wants, who wants to walk away from that job? And
1: by the way, you don't ever take a loss.
0: Yeah. You don't ever take an L. Exactly. You never take a loss. You're always feeling good. You're dealing with conditions and you're having a great time. So for bones to walk away and take Justin Thomas's bag, that's a big step on, on bones. That's a lot of trust and faith. I think, uh, Tim Mickelson did the same thing for Phil. So Tim Mickelson was the, he was a coach at UC San Diego or USD. I think USD for a while. And then from there, he took the Arizona State head coaching job. Yeah, And then after the Arizona State head coaching job, John Rom played for him. And he became John Rom's agent. Kind of like what Phil's old ASU coach was to Phil. (laughs) Phil's original agent was his college coach. But then I think Phil gave him the call about coming on the bag and Tim for you know I think when Bones left Tim Mickelson took the bag for uh-huh. Bones um so at this level it is very important I say I don't take a caddy that's just now with amateur golf but if I were to play on tour I'd want to take a caddy and, and, and put him through trials a little bit because a lot of it is him knowing when to speak up and when not to speak up I mean that that's a huge part of the battle because in the end the player pulls the trigger so, as a caddy, even if you think your player is making the incorrect decision, unless it's egregious and you know it, right, you have to support his decision because you got because ultimately that player. And again, the difference between a seven iron and an eight iron is not that big. You know, if you're between clubs and your player's like it's an eight iron, but as a caddy, you're thinking actually it's probably a seven iron. All the player needs to do is lean on that eight iron a little bit. So, and you don't know what that player's thinking you don't know what's going through with the adrenaline pumping through him right but he could just lean on that eight and get it there he but, really it, but it's the
1: role it's the role of that person to know that like Correct. you have to feel that adrenaline you have yeah. to feel that part of it
0: he's pumped up and he's gonna smash an yeah. air and get it there
1: what, what I find interesting too like how many caddies do we really even know like we know bones mm-hmm. uh, we know Steve Williams through the tiger and all that but I, I that those are the two superstar caddies, and I think probably the next one, not necessarily because he's the greatest caddy in the world. I it's hard, I have no I can't tell. But like you hear Greller a lot because mm-hmm. Speed and Greller, yeah. the, the microphones are always picking them up. They have the conversations, and they they really do play a team game. And you could you hear that you know Speed is very vocal on those things. The microphones always seem to be in his face, which I love, and that gives us a little insight as to what the thought process is like. But I, I you know these are these are unsung heroes. These are guys that you really don't hear a lot from, but. For somebody like Justin Thomas to go get a big name, what, you know how many big names are there? That might be it. He is, you know, I, I, you know Bones is the biggest name I think of the available guys, and I, I do think that that is the kind of move that's going to raise his profile.
0: Yeah, I'm curious what's going to happen because, as you mentioned, you always hear Greller and Spieth are pretty vocal with each other, and Bones and Phil were very vocal with each other. Yeah, so maybe Thomas is looking to kind of. Open up some discussion over shots. I don't know because Bones is, is typically used to being very involved in every shot. So I don't know how that those personalities are going to clash. If if Justin wants Bones to be more confident in making decisions for him, like you know you know when you're a player and you're like ah, I should be a driver three wood. Yeah. We talked about stats before. You want Bones to be like driver, hit it, smoke it. Don't even think about it. Okay, thank you. Boom, you're right. Smoke it. You, you sometimes you want that person to kind of push you. Over that edge and just instill that confidence in you. Yeah. Hey, stop doubting it. Hit it. All See, right. It's the I, right move.
1: I think it's just bringing it to baseball for a minute. I, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like the GM and manager relationship. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. who's calling the shots. I I kind of think that like Bones doesn't take this job unless JT is saying like I'm leaning on you. Like you're the one making the call. I, I get the impression that he's gonna be the one to, I mean, like ultimately the player makes the decision like the player makes the final call at the end of the day but you're not gonna you're you're not gonna go get a guy like that to be on your bag and leave him on the bench mm-hmm. like that you're expecting that person to be able to bring a lot to the table and I don't think bones takes the job without getting like hey okay if I'm gonna do this like you're gonna to listen to me I, I I get the sense like th- that
0: could be the personality behind it and you know what's a big Part of it, too, is crowd control. Sure. So as a caddy, as a rookie caddy out there, it's not easy to put your foot down. I mean, again, I go back to Steve Williams and Tiger. Steve Williams was amazing at crowd control. He was ripping cameras out of people's hands. He's the head security guard. He's, yeah, he's the head security guard. Correct. And Bones, you know, maybe Justin recognizes that. He's like, I'm getting into that, you know, stratosphere yeah. of of, of, a, of an important guy where I'm going to have crowds on me all the time. And it's, it's a distraction. Because when you're out there playing... You're always distracted by by moving crowds. Maybe a guy like Bones to act as a bit of an enforcer in security, because Bones has that credential. He can sit there and tell the marshal, marshal, tell those guys to back off, and and say it with a hundred percent certainty, and let Justin stay in his routine. So that could be you know another you know uh, component to why Justin Thomas went out and picked up a guy like Bones.
1: Yeah, I, that that's a really good point. I want to go back to something that you were talking about too, because I've always wondered this. Like I just kind of assumed when you went to the U.S. Men, I I thought you had a caddy that like rolled with you, and like when you were doing all this stuff, I just, I just always thought that you had somebody that went through that. So when you said no, 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 you're out there like you you carry your own clubs, like that's your deal. That surprised me. I I thought it was different for you.
0: Ninety nine percent of the players back there had a caddy. Okay. So the U.S.G.A. being that the event was in Nantucket. It wasn't easy to get a caddy. But if, so, it,
1: if it was an LA Country Club, would you have had a caddy?
0: Yeah, because I probably could have brought one of my friends to caddy for me. But even then, honestly, I never take a caddy. I mean, every round I play now, I never take a caddy. So why, at some point, would I want to bring somebody that might cause a little bit of doubt? I mean, I don't know. There's a few people I think I would take. You know, but they got to sacrifice a week and a half off of work. Like, it's kind of, you know, they're working, you know, they're worried about their own lives. They're not, you're not paying them necessarily, right? right? right. They're just out there. They'll can it for you, but they got to work, you know, and they might not be familiar with the environment and just kind of be.
1: Yeah. And, and if, by the way, if we win, then we get to go to Augusta. You might be able to play with me. You might not be able to play with me, but yeah. that's the carrot that goes. But then you have to win.
0: Yeah. And again, I just <laughs> you know? like, I, I like leaving I don't like leaving any doubt in my decision making. Hmm. And plus we had push cards so it wasn't that big a deal. And I, I, and I like this whole... Oh,
1: you, you do get a push card.
0: Yes. See, because I, I think you'd
1: get tired. Like if you had a carry on Correct. especially like 36, like 18 you could do. For 36, I feel like at a certain point, right, like it has a little bit of an impact. Like carrying your clubs... Maybe it's just because yeah, it it I'm I'm not that good and not in the greatest shape, I guess. But man, if I'm playing thirty six, like by the end of the day, I'm carrying my own bags like like your swing changes a little yeah, bit because of that.
0: Especially me, I'm carrying an old Mackenzie single strap, so it's not the most efficient bag to carry. That's
1: a ter- terribly efficient bag.
0: Yeah. So you have um you know, and Stuart Hagestad had a great caddy on his bag. He had a, a high school kid who went through caddy programs. That's kind of the perfect yeah, that's blend really to me where this high school kid's not going to chirp up and say anything to Stuart. Stewart's a very confident player, but he knows what he's doing at the same time. It's, it's kind of a, the perfect, you know, he's there for the whole week with Stuart. He's often, you know.
1: It's a learning experience for the
0: kid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I look back at a guy, you know, there was an old Rich Beam who played on tour for many years, won the PGA, and, you know, he had this caddy who I, I was fortunate enough to meet on a driving range in Argentina one year. Jim Furyk went down in 1998 to play in the Argentine Open. That was part of the European Tour. And, of course, he goes – and Jim Furyk was great. He had this – he was always practicing for the future, not for the next day. He was he was practicing for the future. So after Thursday or Friday of the tournament, he goes and hits balls after the range. He's kind of running through protocols. I'm yeah. going to go hit 50 range balls. I'm going to go hit 20 wet shots. I'm going to go putt for a half hour, hit chips. This is my hour and a half or hour of of winding down post-round. And nobody was watching except me. It was Jim Furyk, his caddy, and myself. Nobody else. And his caddy was a guy named Steve Duplantis. And Steve Duplantis gained some notoriety later on when he was caddying for Rich Beam in the 1999 Kemper Open. It was Rich Beam's first win. He was kind of a no-name journeyman. Was selling cars, selling cell phones. And he goes on and wins a tournament. And it was... One of those events where the, the mics were on, the hot mics were on, and Steve Duplantis walked Rich Beam to victory. Obviously, Rich wanted, but Steve Duplantis was there, lock and step. And it wasn't more. It wasn't about taking clubs. It was about being confident in your decision making. And <laughs> the running joke was Steve had packed a bottle of Pepto Bismol. Like the night before, knowing that Rich Beam was going to be nervous yeah. wreck out there, so he was sipping um, Pepto Bismol while he's playing his final round. Rich Beam ends up winning the tournament, and Steve DuPlant is kind of it resurrected both of their careers. And those are examples where it's you got your partner crime to help you through the mental emotion that is tournament golf.
1: You know, what's funny. There's there's actually if you if you look it up there's an old story in the Washington post about the 99 kemper open it's it's great first of all i was amazed. i i i didn't realize this both rich beam and the plantis like the next week, we're having laser eye surgery. Like, so neither one of them could see out there, which is beautiful. Yeah. Like, the fact that it's literally, quite literally, the blind leading the blind mm-hmm. in that scenario, which I thought was great. And then, you know, Rich Beam has a great quote afterwards. He's like, Yeah, you know, you get 10% for a winner's check, um, you get 7% for a top 10, 5% otherwise. So, you know, sliding scale there for the caddy for mm-hmm. what you're bringing home. And he goes, Hey, writing that 10% check, I've never been happier to write a check in my life. And he made more money that day than mm-hmm. what Rich Beam had Earned that entire no, season to that correct. point. Like that's that's how big it was. Life changing uh, for both those guys. Uh, unfortunately for 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 Steve ends up you know Steve the Plantis, it's, it's a sad tale. He passed away in, in 2008 in an accident uh, here in Southern California. But uh, just pretty pretty phenomenal. Like the way that something like that c- can totally change their lives. And and the, that relationship is. So significant. And, and there really is something to the, the caddy player relationship. I mean, you just see it like, you know, I talked about this before, but, you know, when I went up to Bandon Dunes and my buddy Jeff, who ended up being our champion that week, he had a caddy that he's had before and that guy was with him the whole weekend. And then you're, you know, all five rounds, he's got that same guy on the bag. You get to know the game a little bit. And they're a team and you feel that. Like even, even like the resort looper that you're getting is still a teammate and, yeah. and, and you feel that sense. I think the sense of camaraderie, I think that, you know, especially, and, and certainly you could speak to this more than I can. Golf is such a lonely game mm-hmm. that if you can have somebody on your side and somebody that is inside the ropes with you, I think it's one that like you can have your support system. That's just outside the ropes and it's great to see them and, and that can be helped, but you need someone in the trenches with you that can make an impact. Um, And you have to have the right person for that. That, that Very few people, very few marriages can work like that in in, in the caddy uh, player relationship.
0: You know, and and, and I'll admit that my match at the U.S. Mid-Am, you know, my opponent had a caddy who was a dear friend of his, and he had all his family support with him, and I was by myself, and I kind of, I enjoyed that.
1: Yeah, you like the grit.
0: I like the grit, but you're not wrong. You're not wrong about having somebody in the trenches with you. And... I've always, I've caddied a lot, you know, for friends in my life. And it's amazing how I think when I'm caddying versus when I'm playing. When I'm caddying, my player will make comments. And to me, I'm like, how do you think that way? You know, get that out of your mind. But deep down, I say the same thing to myself when I'm playing. Yeah. So it gives you a fresh perspective when you caddy because you want to be the best caddy on that bag, yeah. right? And have your player clear mind. If only you could think that way when you're playing. You know, because you're, when you're caddying and your player makes a bogey, hey, get that out of your mind. This is, this is a brand new hole. Sure. Let's focus on this tee shot. Why don't I think that way when I'm playing golf? <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? For sure. So every once in a while, it's kind of good for the player to go caddy for somebody because yeah. you you sort of step outside your body and realize how you should be thinking out there.
1: You gotta have some of that too, and even sometimes, like in the middle of it, like I was playing, you know, I was playing at Tustin Ranch, and like on the seventh hole, I I had a, I had a beautiful tee shot, I had like eighty yards in, blade the shot, put it in the back of the back of the bunker. Then I, you know, I'm frustrated about that because I eighty yard wedge and I I flubbed it, and then I hit one through to the other bunker on the other side. Now I'm losing it, but at a certain point, you gotta settle down and be like. No, I, I, I can't. Like, I'm not gonna take a triple here. I'm not gonna. Like, I'm. I have a chance for. If I get up and down, it's a double. I want my double. And I hit it. Not even a great shot to 20 feet, but I, I had to make that putt. It was super important. When you can take it down and like get that thought into your head, like, no, no, no. Like, I'm not. Like, this is. I, I'm. I'm making this shot. Like, it's going to happen. I'm getting in from two from here. That kind of mentality probably is hard to have if you don't have somebody else with you like I, I things can spiral, and when somebody else can be like, "No, no, no, like you're getting this done right now, that means something
0: well, because when you're playing, things go by fast, yeah, but things are going very quickly, and you don't have time to reserve judgment and sort of think a shot through sometimes, especially when you're making a big number, yeah. You're on the clock. You're behind. Whatever it, it is, it would have been.
1: It would have been so easy for for that to become an eight. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean. Like it would be so easy for that Correct. to happen. Correct. But a double bogey can can. Le- I, I buried the next hole. Now I'm okay. One over through two, I can live with that. Yeah, let's, let's, keep, let's, keep, let's keep let's keep let's keep playing. That's what happens. It's okay. I I, I wanted to tell that story because there's been a billion examples where <laughs> I birdie a hole and then I double the next one. So I, I don't want to share those stories. Yeah. That's like um, I, I want to shift gears f- for a moment here and, and talk about what Sam Burns uh, has done recently. And you know, Sam Burns gets a win over the weekend. And one of the things that has become totally apparent in the game of golf, so. Let's roll things back to where you're talking of the post Tiger era. So after Tiger, who's gonna be the next tiger? And you know for a long time, I think people thought that was gonna be Rory. I still think Rory could have been that. Uh, he was he's, he's not the next tiger. there might not never be a next tiger. Uh, Dustin Johnson is still great, but he was you know so good. And then even from that group, now there's another wave of elite player. And, you know, for a long time, I think people thought, you know, Spieth and JT would be that. And, like, those are looking like the young guns. Well, they're, they're not, like, that young anymore because there's now another wave of guys that is coming through here. And I think Sam Burns is, he's 25 years old. And I think Sam Burns has a chance, 18th in the world right now. I mean, he could end up being like a top ten guy. Like Sam Burns is a stick and, and he gets the win and you know, I, I kind of made my case for why I thought he should have been on the Ryder Cup team in hindsight. Hey Steve Stricker, you do you. Like that worked perfectly. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. at the same time, like I think when it comes to twenty three, I think we'll probably see Sam Burns on the yeah. Ryder Cup team. I think he's that that kind of good.
0: Well, there's a guy he beat that's also a brand newcomer named Sahith Tagala, who played golf at Pepperdine, and he was a first team All American world beater. And from Riverside, and he was leading through 54, and Sam Burns clipped him. But if you look back at the new generation of players, I mean, again, there's, there's new generations, I feel like, every year. There's like right. a new crop of players, but there was a big four that came out. You had Victor Hovland, who went to Oklahoma State. You had Matt Wolf, also, went to Oklahoma State. You had Colin Morikawa from Cal. And then there's kind of an un, a forgotten player, Justin Suh. Who went to USC? So Justin Suh, that that last year in school, I think Justin, you know, these guys were juniors, and and Wolf was a young one; he was like a, a sophomore, something mm-hmm. like that. Okay. But Justin Suh was number one r- ranked amateur in the world. He was the cream of the crop of that group, and they all turned pro. They made their big debut, you know, and they called him the Fab Four. And Morikawa, they all, the way it works, if you're if you're one of the dominant players in college golf you're most likely going to get about seven exemptions to the PGA Tour. So it's up to you. They only get that to one or two guys a year. But since there were four really good ones, you know, some may have gotten five exemptions. Morekawa got four. Hovland got maybe, yep. you know, six because he got one in Europe or whatever it was. Each okay. one gets a little bit different. Morekawa wins. Hovland wins. Wolf was in that playoff. Yes. With, uh, it was Wolf and Morikawa were in the playoff with DeChambeau for a, a tour event, I think, a, a few years back. He wins. And then Justin Suh just didn't seem to break that barrier. And I'm not saying he's a fantastic player, and I do believe he will break through and be on tour, but he hasn't made it yet. People forget how difficult it is. It takes about seven years for the average tour player to get their card. You know, we, we get blinded by the guys like Ricky Fowler and Spieth and Cantlay who yeah. who burst out to the scene. And Sam Burns wasn't even in that group. And he's now got a title under his belt. And now you got Sahit Thegala, who I was playing the SEG Amateur with him a year ago at Lakeside Golf Club. And now he's contending in tour events. So he had this like new crop of just fearless guys that hit the snot out of the ball. And they're not intimidated by Tiger anymore. Because he's sort of gone. And I don't know what it is, but golf is taken on a... Tiger had that Kobe Bryant mentality, yeah. Where he want, he didn't want to make friends and he wanted to beat everybody. I think the newer wave of players realize with social media and marketing that it doesn't hurt to be a friendly person on that tour and that cutthroat mentality. Maybe seems to I don't know. Maybe kids are brought up a little different, you know, these days where it's not they're not taught to just go beat the brains out of their opponents anymore. So, will we ever see Tiger or that type of player again? Who knows? Maybe not in my lifetime, but at some point, we will, right? It's only going to repeat itself. But yeah. Sam Burns, the Heath and those guys, they're they are playing outstanding. Yeah, that was the, the
1: 2019 3M Open up in uh, Minnesota. That one, correct, yep. How about the fact that his first, he makes the cut in his very first PGA event, and he makes another cut, then misses a cut. And then wins his fourth tour event.
0: Who, who is this?
1: Talk about Matthew Wolf. Sorry, yeah, Matt Going Wolf, back, yeah, going back exactly. to Matt Wolf, what do you think? Yeah. fourth career event, uh, and in four events in two cuts and a win. Like that's yeah, like that, that's really that's, un, that's unbelievable. He was able to go on like that. I thought I think the Justin Suh story is interesting because when you're that ranked, you know, number one amateur in the world, and you're seeing all these other guys with it, like I would imagine that for Justin Suh, who looked like it was going to be just. Handed to him, probably thinking like what happened. In some sense, it's not like he's done. I mean, this guy could end up being a great player. He's he's still very, very good, and he's still getting opportunities on tour. In fact, he was in the event a couple weeks ago. He looked pretty good. Um, But I I would kind of wonder like where he's at in a mental space because I I was reading some stories on him. Golf Digest did a profile on him about how he would get so caught up. Like he he would go you know tour stop to tour stop sit in his hotel room at night and scroll through Instagram. And he'd look at a thousand different swings and all of those swing thoughts are getting in his head. So we're at a certain point, he's like, I had to throw the phone away. He got close and, and he really felt like he was going to be, you know, making the right steps right before, you know, the COVID shutdown uh, started last year, which is unfortunate for his timing. But I, I did think that that was pretty fascinating how, somebody that is number one amateur player in the world, you you're so talented, so much going for you and you can be looking at the phone and get caught up and lost in different what other people are doing and how you're gonna get there. I don't know, maybe does that speak to the desperation of what it takes to be on tour? Does that speak to maybe just how hard this is? It's not like you know baseball where there's 30 teams and 26 players on every team. It's not like the NFL where there's 53-man rosters. I mean, how many tour guys are like set on tour where you know you're going to have your card the next year? That's a finite number. And even just to qualify for tour events is unbelievably difficult even for the number one amateur in the world, uh, the former number one amateur in the world. And and I think I, that's fascinating.
0: I'll tell you what. It certainly doesn't help when your friends, those other three guys, are Ryder Cuppers. Yeah. So he's probably adding pressure to himself. I'm sure. And he's finding ways. Like, what am I doing wrong? Why am I not on the Ryder Cup team? Why am I not a PJ Tour winner yet? Why don't I have my PJ Tour card yet? Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Then you start going down this rabbit hole, of Instagram and looking at all these teachers posting swing tips, thinking maybe something will click or whatever it is. And it's most likely not a swing. It's, it's, it's gotta yeah. be his, his mental outlook on tour. And it's just flat out hard. He's not in a rush. He doesn't need to be out there day one. It's just a unique situation. Again, the average tour player takes about seven years to get on the PJ tour. So if you're turning pro at 22, you're going to be on tour at 29 yeah, and you still have a good 10 year career. So it's easy to get caught up saying, I need to get on tour now, 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 now. But it's also not the same as it was before where you had Q school at the end of every year. And if you go to Q school, you can you could have a terrible year, go play mini tours, go play anywhere in around the world, but you always have that Q school carrot dangling at the very end where if I just have a good month of golf, I will be on the PGA Tour. That doesn't exist anymore. Now you got to go corn ferry, play a year on corn ferry, go to the corn ferry playoffs and then try to get your tour card. And a lot of times it's, it's three stages. It's, you know, the PGA Latin America, which I played a little bit of on the European challenge tour, the McKenzie tour in Canada, the Asian to um, the PGA tour Asia. Yeah. And those you have a year on there, go to the corn ferry from the corn ferry, go to the PGA tour. That's kind of like a natural progression. So you're three years away. From getting your tour card if all things go well. So now if you're 25 and you don't really have any status anywhere, you're looking at 27, 28 before you're on tour if all things go well. Unless, of course, you get a sponsor's exemption and you win, which that's happened before, but it ain't easy.
1: The other thing that that you've talked about, I've heard you say before, like because I've asked you about like... Hey man, if you were to if you were to win the U.S. Mid Am, if you were to have a top ten finish or I guess a, a, a top eight finish or something like that, would you consider like going back to try to play professionally again? And I, I remember like I, it really stood out to me. You're like, it's a young man's game. It's a lot younger, I think, than people even realize. I think at when when in, you're now looking, maybe this has to do with the athleticism that's required on tour, maybe more so now than in years past. But the age window is pretty reflective of what you see in the NBA, in MLB, yeah. in the NFL. Though that the age windows now where you're talking about, you know, the prime of your athletic body, right? You know, is from what what do they say from like 20 years old to, to 31 yeah. or something something like that and then like your brain starts developing at, at peak at like 28 or something like that so now you're looking at like the, the prime window that you see in all of the other major sports golf now is looking like it's got that same prime window which i don't think existed before i always thought it was later
0: yeah i mean so the, what, what you want to look at as far as prime windows and when player succeed. So when I was growing up, the guys were Greg Norman, Nick Faldo, Nick Price. They were all in their mid-30s. That was when you hit your prime because you were, you had peak physical. Not peak physical, but you were, you know, it's golf, so it's not it's not football or cl- basketball. Cl- so close to peak physical. Yeah, close yeah. to peak physical, but you're peak mentally. Yeah. You could handle the pressure. Now it's almost inverted where... With technology and the advent of the ball, Bryson will get a lot more advantage or Bryson will, will benefit a lot more with technology than the average 10 handicap. He'll go from hitting drives from 300 yards to 400 yards, where most guys will go from hitting at 250 to 265, 270. Yeah. So he's this, this giant power game has shifted. And now guys like Adam Scott, Luke Donald, Jason Day. Where's Jason... De- I mean, they're still out there, but you don't see them as the number one player in the world. He was a number one player in the world at one time, and I haven't seen his name in a while. And I think it's a combination of mental scars and power. The older you get, the more scars you develop in your brain. Hmm. And I think you couple that with these guys showing up with zero fear, and there's no tiger looming over them to kind of kick them in the... You know, kick them in the head to kind of put them back in their place... It's a little bit of that. It's, it's the power game combined with mental scars. Yeah, you can have your outliers, Phil Mickelson. Yeah. These guys are going to win the longevity. Because Phil still pounds it. He really does. If you take care of your body, you can still hammer it. But those mental scars, man, Those the, the putter gets nervy. You develop a lot more failures in life going through your PGA Tour career than the young guys do. So I think it's just slowly shifted to guys and their. At 22 to 27, expect to go out there and, and dominate and make Ryder Cup teams right away. I almost feel for the
1: guy that's like between 32 and like 45. Like that like that that player had to face Prime Tiger. And then even, you know, and some of the younger ones in that same category like came up like in the shadow of Tiger where it was just so impossible to live up to what he was doing and, and the who's the next going to be and, and all of that. Now, Tiger's made a life for all of them. Tiger created so much of the success that's on tour for, that all of these guys get to enjoy. But the player that might be 32 that tried to make it in the shadow of Tiger – that now gets to see these twenty five year olds come up and they are probably as talented as what that player was before, but now you don't have to worry about any of that. I think there's something to that. I think you're on I think you're onto something.
0: I agree. I mean look at Sergio Garcia. Imagine Sergio Garcia was nineteen. Do we remember the PGA at, at Medina, him running up the fairway as a 19 year old, like when he chased, almost chased yeah, down Tiger. Hey, can
1: we can we bring back 24 year old Sergio and have that player now? Like that, that would have been, that the would have been ruthless
0: fearless wrong. and charismatic. And like yeah. you, you watch him today and he's, he looks downtrodden and just beaten down <laughs> just because Tiger's just taking it to him year in and year out. I still like Sergio. Yeah, of course. I mean, he's one of my favorite ball strikers to watch. But, yeah. you know, it, it, you develop those scars and it's real. I mean, you got guys like Henrik Stenson, Luke Donald, who, um, they developed driver yips. I mean, Luke Donald is the number one player in, in the world. He won the PGA Tour money list and the Order of Merit money list. And he still hits it far. Right. But just he's not hitting it in these ludicrous numbers coupled with mental scars. Yeah. You know?
1: I, I, think that's, I think that's a huge part of it because I think it'd be so easy to just like, I guess maybe the logic part of my brain, the science part of golf, gets caught up in like the physical athleticism and that being the driving force compared to the art part of it and what goes through mm-hmm. you know between the years i the, the mental scars to me is is something I, I really haven't considered because i think that you know and and maybe maybe tiger is the reason why i think this way because i think to myself well i mean it, the, the greats of the greats they, they're so mentally tough so mentally strong like that doesn't phase them like i i look at phil sometimes and i think that boy phil could be in any position on a hole and he's gonna he's gonna find his way through it because he's done it so many times before. But that, that's not always the case, and I, I think that's kind of a, an interesting thought.
0: When you were watching Tiger in his prime, in like the early two thousands, yeah. Whenever he was in contention or leading, very few people challenged him.
1: Well, and whoever was with him fell apart.
0: Correct. I mean, Bob May. You know, I I knew Bob May quite a bit um, when I was a kid. Yeah, he advised me about going. to It's kind of funny, Bob May. <laughs> I was going to looking at colleges and universities to choose, and I was between UNLV, uh, Oklahoma State, USC. He goes, oh, don't go to USC. (laughs) Of course I go to USC. Um, But very few guys challenge him. And now there's no player that's, you know, people fall apart nowadays. That's why it was more entertaining for a while. When Tiger was still in his prime, but he wasn't playing the tournament, it was actually more entertaining in some ways because people would have meltdowns. Yeah. Right? I mean look at Jan Vandevelde at the British Open. <laughs> you, you have these things all timer. Yeah, all timers. You see the human side of sport, right? Where guys can't handle the pressure. And now there's no dominant player like Tiger as much as before. So guys aren't scared to go up and make moves and challenge, right? And they're not gonna they're not gonna dwindle away with Tiger just sitting there because he was just so good at hitting the middle of the green and and two putting for pars and just bludgeoning you to death.
1: The only thing I would say to kind of counter that is, there is no more Tiger, and there's certainly no more Tiger factor. But I, I do think like that, that like really top echelon core. I mean, when you're talking Rom Cantley, uh, that group that the Ryder Cuppers. You take the Ryder Cuppers. Yeah, Couppers, yeah. I don't know how I think if you're up against any of those guys. I I think that they are so good; they're they're finding ways to win. I I think that group really. I think there's a really big gap, even even like on the Ryder Cup team. If you want to go, like you know, DJ Xander. Um. You, 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 uh, obviously, you could go, you know, the, the names I mentioned before Brooks, Bryson. I, I think, and then even like to Scotty Scheffler I think there's a gap. And I, I think that, like, you know, Burns might be in that next tier, and there's a lot of good players in that next tier, but I think there's a gap.
0: Well, and Brooks brought up a very good point. So when Brooks kept was on his major run, and yeah. he won like four of six majors something like that. He made a good point. He's like, listen, every major, there's whatever, 150 players, mm-hmm. but of those 150, 100 are not prepared to win. Yeah. Right? So you get 50 players remaining. And of those 50, only 10 can really challenge for the title. Yeah. So you kind of dwindle down that list saying, hey, of, of these 150 players, there's only 10 or 20 it's guys like the Cup that team. can really win it. Yeah. Because guess what? When it gets hot in the kitchen, they're not going to be able to step up. Yeah. And I think a lot of players know deep down who those guys are. Yeah. So there might be a lot of great players, but they're having dinner, they're traveling together, and you tend to give your emotions or express your emotions to your fellow competitors sometimes you you talk through your struggles right a lot of guys do that Tiger never did that but a lot of guys are barbecuing hanging out together flying together and like oh man I'm I'm just struggling with my driver I don't know what I can do you know when I get in these heat of the moment situations I just can't seem to step through blah 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 that stuff filters through the tour so yeah. guys like Brooks who have a bit of that killer instinct sure. they're like this guy's gonna falter this guy can't hang so he knows, and these guys know who the real dogs are out there.
1: I was watching some video of Justin Sud today. And I wanted to bring this up with you. Um, there was a drill they were doing on the football field at USC, and at you know, for those that aren't familiar, Nico played at USC. Um, where you're trying to like, because you don't really have a great golf facility like on site. Like, how mm-hmm. do you, I like, guess, as, as a USC golfer, like, how do you prepare?
0: Well, so we had a pretty unique. Routine and a neat rotation of golf courses. So, Monday we go to Lakeside, which is a great club in Hollywood. Tuesdays we'd go to Wilshire, another great club in like central LA. Wednesdays we would rotate between LA Country Club and Riviera. That's okay. Yeah. And then Thursdays we'd be back at Wilshire. And then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, typically our coach was a member at LA at the time and had a couple of teammates who were members at LA. And we had two corporate memberships at Riviera. So, of course, looking back on it now, we're going to football games, drinking, like not going to practice. <laughs> what we had to our, sure. you know, right at our footsteps. You essentially
1: was, had a membership at Riviera.
0: But we did not have a solid practice facility. Again, yeah. uh, looking back on hindsight now, I didn't care about it or I shouldn't have cared about it or at the time I was playing. Do you think it matters? It matters a little bit. Okay. It matters a little bit. But ultimately, golf is about shooting the lowest score on a golf course, not about hitting range balls. That's what it comes down to. So on the range at USC, Chris Zambri had a very good and unique program where he developed a scoring system. I didn't play for Chris Zambri, so I don't, I'm i not too familiar with the scoring system. But he had a drill where I think it was 50 or 100 golf balls, and they do testing once a month. And they would go through every iron in the bag or maybe, you know, mid iron to short iron. And they'd have these combinations of scores. Right, and then they rated everybody of how far how how much you could control your distance and direction Mm. so he was just working on the scoring clubs because in the end on tour you gotta be able to bomb the driver and you gotta be able to score with the scoring clubs which would be 7-iron below 8-iron below you got those in your hands Yeah, you're looking to make birdie right and then putting of course so he had this kind of really unique system on the football field where he'd drop off mats and targets and created a grid which Zambri did it on his own and Ironically enough, he goes and he becomes the assistant coach of Pepperine and then won the NCAA championship at yep. Pepperine the year after he was let go by USC. So I, I didn't agree with him being let go, but um because he had a very, he always had those guys in the top five. And, you know, it was his yeah. way of the highway type program, but it worked for we're, a lot of guys. We're,
1: we're, we're, when, the go- when the college golf season picks up, I, I want to get into that a little bit. I think it's different because yeah. I, I think that, like, you know, I I don't know that it gets a ton of love. I mean, you see it, you know, occasionally there will be big tournaments on Golf Channel, um, but you know, the, the really big ones. But you just don't see a ton, and I think it's really cool to see, you know, that next wave. And and it's also interesting too, like a Justin Suh, like right now, if he was a baseball player, you'd be talking about him as a possible bust. Uh, it doesn't mean it's it's done. It doesn't mean that he can't do it. But right now, that group he was with, like if that's like he's the Darko Milicic of that group yeah, right yeah. now. I mean, uh-huh. and he might end up being pretty good, but. But I think that's just kind of where he's at so I, I think that, that is um you know something fun to look at I, I like college golf I' I've fantastic. never really gotten into it but I've done so a little bit now it's fun like it's really really competitive you guys had it so good the courses you guys we did played, have a really good you yep. had it so good. You know, i gotta, I got to go pay whatever i got to go pay to go on, on the public courses here at Orange County, which are all, like, punched right now.
0: So, for Riviera, it was hilarious. We had two corporate memberships, and I was driving, at the time, a 1988 Acura Legend. This is in 2000-whatever, that's five. The, that's the best. So, I had a 1988 Acura Legend, and I had a little Riviera sticker. Like if, you're, <laughs> if you're a member of a club, they give you a little sticker on the windshield. They, kinda, gave, they gave you one? Oh, yeah. I was a member. I had a locker. We had two memberships there, so I would pull into the gates of Riviera, and the guy would sit there and be like, oh, hey, the maintenance parking's over there. And I was like, no, 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 no. See the sticker? Open up that. So, Riviera, when you pull in, they have a member's parking lot that has a separate little gate to go into. So, I pull my little riggedy-dink 1988 Acura Legend into that member's parking lot. You're darn right. It was, it was unreal what we had looking back on it now, you know. A really, la carte,
1: really good stuff. You just don't, you know, but and they they probably they they probably like you playing a Riviera.
0: Yeah, I think they do. I mean, because it wasn't the whole team. So typically, we had two, yeah. we had two corporate memberships, and we we could bring two guests out. Yeah, but you know, again, the team was ten guys. You know, on the weekends, people are partying, going home, whatever it is. Like it wasn't important to be practicing all day, which again, looking back on it, right? How, yeah. how dumb are we? That's
1: crazy. And, 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 and Yeah, go ahead. Sorry.
0: No, nothing. And they, so we'd, we'd go out there and the Riviera's always pretty quiet. We'd go yeah. out there, hit balls, warm up, play with a couple actors or whoever it was and play the back nine. We used to play with Mark Wahlberg quite a bit, um, which is pretty cool. And he just liked playing with good golfers. So, we, you know, we show up with an SC bag, it's pretty neat to See, be on the grounds.
1: It's my understanding, and again, I can't really speak to this, just a little hint though. I've heard like Riviera like is all about the golf L.A. is the scene. Like, the golf course is great, but it's the scene.
0: Am I no, wrong? No, no, you're wrong on that. So okay. the scene would be Lake. a great hang would be lakeside. Okay. L.A. is all about golf. Okay. L.A. Country Club is, in my opinion, the best golf course in Southern California. It's it's incredible. On the piece of land it's on, and it's, it's Bermuda grass and pure distinction greens, where Revere is all kukuya, so the ball doesn't release as much. Um, and again I, it's, I, it's think, I
1: think we need to do I think we need to do a show which is just the, LA's best golf courses just
0: rank the golf courses just rank them that'd be pretty easy yeah
1: that'd be easy for you
0: yeah
1: <laughs> I'd say, well you get the you get you to get play. So, so LA LA is easily won
0: I think LA is yeah. easily won Riviera's yeah. right there then you got Lakeside because there's so many different influencing factors Bel Air's a great hang too
1: that's um, the one I was. I, I, so that's the hang I was thinking of yeah I, Bel, Air. I be, Bel Air sorry I, meant, I said LA I meant Bel Air Bel Air's, Bel Air's a good name. hang that's yeah. the hang I've heard that yeah in like the broadcasting world I've also heard like that's where that's where they go it's good stuff Uh, That's going to be it for us. We're out of time. This has been fun, as always. Nico, appreciate it. Uh, Really cool insight. Uh, You know, if you missed the show earlier, you can catch the podcast. Uh, We have an Instagram page, Rush on the Links. Go check that out. Give us a follow. Ratings and reviews help a ton for us. Uh, So if you could do that, uh, that would really uh, go a long way. Certainly appreciate that. For Nico, I'm Trent. Thanks for joining us. This has been Rush on the Links.